This is Radar by Nextworks. I'm your host, Stephen van Bellegem, and every month, my friends at Nextworks and I bring you the latest developments in technology, business, and everything related to innovation. Hi, everyone. Welcome in a new episode of Radar, our monthly Nextworks podcast. This week, I'm here with Laurence van Elehem. I'm here with Pascal Koppens and with Peter Hinzen. Hi, everyone. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Morning, Steve. Good to see all of you. And we're going to kick off with a question. We got this question that came in from Mario, Mario Major, who works at the Belgian train organization, the NMBS. And he has a personal question. He said, you know, you guys talk a lot for audiences and you're trying to make people excited about your ideas. But how do you deal with the fact if you cannot convince the group that is in front of you? What if only a minority of the people really gets your ideas? That's a question that Mario has. And maybe, Pascal, I'm going to bounce that question to you. Uh, you're speaking a lot about China. And I can imagine that when you have an audience in front of you, that you always have like a group of people in the audience that is not really fond of China, that may be against China by definition, and is pretty skeptical if you become excited about China. So I'm going to ask you to answer this one. How do you deal with that if people don't follow your ideas? Well, um, it's a story of my life uh, for the past many years, because uh, ultimately, if you believe the statistics, is about 70% or more of people in Europe and America don't trust China or see China from a very negative perspective. It's actually not the minority. It's usually the majority of a, a general population. Of course, the people we talk to are usually quite open-minded and they want to understand both sides. But the challenge is not so much to convince, it's to provide information that people are not aware of. That's the, for me, has been the key, is, is not to try and convince. Convincing doesn't work when somebody really believes that China is evil or is, is not doing the right things and really should not have a one-party system and so on. I mean, just saying, yeah, but it works, it works better. I mean, it makes no sense. Uh, not that I believe that, that it's the best system. It's just that it's a different system. For me, it's not about convincing. It's about just explaining with passion what you've experienced, explaining things that people are not aware of, and then people can make their own assessments whether that stands or doesn't stand. But I think usually it's the nuance that is important. The problem with it is that you get one binary question usually or one binary statement where you have to answer yes or no or very short And typically, anything related to China takes about 10, 20 minutes to explain the context. And specifically, when you do that on the media, I've done it a number of times, it's really hard to be very concise and say in just three sentences, yes, this is why China does that, while the perception is completely the opposite. So for me, the context needs a longer explanation. And so storytelling is the best way to tell people how the Chinese feel, because that somehow puts the perspective and the feeling about what's happening in a different uh, light. And then ultimately, yeah, if people really want to see the whole story, then you need to explain it completely. And that's why I wrote a book about it, <laughs> because then at least most of the times people say, yes, but the Chinese vaccines don't work. And, and then I say, yeah, you're right. Uh, but I've explained it all in my book and you can read it there because it's just too much work to, to explain it in just two sentences. How is the book going, Pascal? The book in Dutch is going very well. The launch was actually pretty successful. I mean, meaning people really liked it, enjoyed it. I'm just finishing up the English version. So the, we're in the design phase. So 
in a week or two from now, it should be on Amazon. So that's that's cool. going to be exciting. Yeah. yeah, and it has a fantastic binary question as the title. Like, can we trust yes. China? Can we trust China? <laughs> you expect a yes and no. And so, <laughs> of course, yes, that's not the answer is not a yes or no. Okay, fantastic. Well, thanks for sharing that. And um, I hope that works for Mario to help him further with this challenge. Let's dive into the content of this month. And I'm going to start with Laurence. We're going to talk quite a bit about Web3 topics in this podcast. There's a lot of stuff going on there. But Laurence asked me to give her the word first because she wants to explain a little bit the difference between Web3 and Web3.0 because there's a lot of confusion about that in the market, Laurence. Uh, yes, indeed. So, uh, like you said, I wanted to try out something that's a little different because I did for the past week a lot of research about Web3 and I found that often people mix both terms and even Wikipedia says that Web3 sometimes is Web3.0, but actually they are quite different things. And so that's what I wanted to share today. Um, consider it like an explainer video, but without the image and just the soothing comfort of my voice. First, before I go on, I want to thank Koen Vingroots, who is one of the biggest experts on blockchain in Belgium, who really proofread and checked my preparation. And I will be starting first with Web3 and then moving on to Web3.0 and then explaining what the difference is between both. So the vision behind Web3 is that people want to fight the centralized power of dominance and dominance of a handful of Web2 giants like Facebook and Amazon and Google by creating a decentralized version of the internet. And so what does that mean? Well, the first iteration of the internet, which was Web1, was pretty static and read-only. Then you had the second one, which was Web2, is Web2 because we're still there, is a more interactive and social version where users can create and share their own content. But the thing about Web2 is that it also has a dark side, which is that a handful of platforms own and control the data of their users and that they can manipulate them in certain ways that are not always considered ethical or even democratic. And that is exactly what Web3 wants to solve. Now, how will it solve this? Through the use of blockchain technologies, Web3 will take away the data ownership from the Web2 giants and then give it back to the users who can then decide who gets access to their data and to their identity. And how would it work? Well, users will store all of their data and their identity in a cryptocurrency wallet like Metamask or Venly or Trust Wallet. And this will allow them to interact with other types of blockchain apps and choose who can read their data and who can't. And really simply put, Signing in with a crypto wallet is a lot like signing in with a Facebook account on other apps, but the difference is obviously that you own and control all of your own data. Now, Web 3.0 is the semantic web, and this is the vision of Tim Berners-Lee, who we all know is the inventor of the World Wide Web, and he wants to connect everything on the web at a data level in order to unlock its full potential. And so what does that mean? So in the current internet, we have URLs or links, and those links connect documents with each other. They connect documents, not facts or not raw data. And the result is that you end up with information silos. Just to give a really easy example, if you change jobs and you adapt that information in LinkedIn, your Facebook details will not be updated because they are not linked. 
And Tim Berners-Lee wants to connect all that info so that you only need to change it once if you want to change it. The results of all this will be more accuracy, obviously, and more intelligence because the more that you connect things at the data level, the more people have access to that intelligence and the more they can mine insights from that. So how does the semantic web work? The solution is to store all of your data in one central place called the solid pod. And this allows users to control which people and which applications can access their data. And on top of that pod, we would add a web ID so that you can identify yourself over the web. And just like with a crypto wallet, you could compare that web ID to how we can sign into apps like LinkedIn or Facebook accounts, but again, without losing control of your own data. And a good example, obviously, of this is um, the data utility company of the Flemish government, Data Nutsbedrijf, uh, for the Flemish listeners, which is investigating this approach for Flemish citizens. And to wrap this up, because I know this was a lot of info at once, both Web3, which is a decentralized web, and Web3.0, which is a semantic web, they offer an alternative to the current web, which they feel is broken. But they both have a different focus. The semantic web, or Web3.0, focuses on efficiency and on intelligence by reusing and linking data across websites. Now, the decentralized web, or Web3, focuses on empowerment and on security by giving power over data and identity back to the people. Also, they use different technology to get there. Web3, obviously, blockchain. Web3.0, data interchange technologies like RDF, Sparkle, OWL, and things like that. A consequence of this difference is that data in Web3 is difficult to change because it's distributed over so many places, while data in Web3.0 is easy to change. And the last thing I want to add here is that though their focus is different, their methods is indeed similar-ish because both want user data to be kept under control of the user. But in the case of Semantic Web, this data is kept in a solid pod. And in the case of Web3, it is kept in a crypto wallet. The difference between that is that the data is kept centralized in the solid pod, whereas a crypto wallet merely holds keys to assets which reside decentralized on the blockchain. And the true core difference is Web3 is decentralized and Web3.0 is semantic or linked. And to conclude, in the end, will this difference matter? Well, probably not very much because both want to create a better version of the internet and also both are still being built. And chances are that the final version of this more linked and more secure, decentralized or user-centric new internet will be a convergence of these and of other technologies and approaches. And I want to end by saying that if you're still confused, dear listener, <laughs> I also wrote a piece about the basics of Web3 on the Nextworks website, which is also like an explainer video, but also without the image and also without the sound, but just text. Thanks for sharing that. Any reactions, Peter, Pascal, things you want to add? Or yeah, thank ask? you for uh, pointing that out, uh, Laurence. I think um, the interesting thing is going to be when you talk about Web 3.0, so the Tim Berners-Lee solid example. And indeed, we're going to have an interesting moment after the summer, because in September, the Flemish government is going to launch that. It's probably one of the first nations in the world. 
I'm still confused about what the business model is going to be because the whole idea of being able to control and you know have better privacy controls over your own data is a very, very wonderful concept. But what is the role of the government going to be? How is it going to work with third parties? What is the monetization going to be? I think, honestly, this is really cool technology, but I am extremely interested to see how that is going to work from an economic point of view. We should probably dedicate, after the launch in September, a little bit of time to look at some of the use cases they've come up with, because that's what they're building right now. I think, honestly, the technology side is probably the easiest part to make this work. But how is this going to work from an you know, economic financial point of view? So I'm really curious how that's going to play out. Yeah. And I'm really worried about the consumer citizen side of things. You gave a perfect explanation, Laurence. Thanks for that. But I think if I would ask my parents to listen to that, that they wouldn't be able to replicate that or explain that to their friends what it's really about. It's very theoretical for a lot of people. I noticed when I talk about these things in my presentations and I ask the audience about their awareness, uh, the awareness is still very, very low. Uh, not if you go to California, not if you go to LA, but if you talk in European markets about this. You have a number of experts, a number of technology lovers, some nerds that are really into this. But for the average audience, it's really difficult to understand. And I think if you look to the theory of adoption of innovation, the traditional adoption curve, being clear about how something works, being clear how to explain it to others, being clear what the benefits are for the individual are crucial for adoption. I'm really curious to see how they will make this easy to understand, how they will make it easy to use. That's going to be the crucial part. Absolutely agree, because when I was trying to tell this story and to explain it to people, one thought that I had was with Web3 and with new technologies, what we always do is explain how the technology works. But if you think about it, Does anybody know how Web1 works? The people who use Web1 and who use Facebook, okay, they know about algorithms and things like that. But really, what's under the hood, how it works, nobody knows that anymore because we know the consequences. We talk about the consequences. And when you're building something like Web3 and Web3.0, we don't know what the consequences are. And yes, we are wondering how will it work out with business models, but we just don't know at this point what will happen. And so... Yeah, that's what I was thinking when I was trying to explain this. Is this relevant? But still, I wanted to do it because I'm a bit of a nerd. <laughs> so that's why. It's absolutely relevant. Um, and I think our audience really understands this. But uh, the challenge is the mass market and to explain to them what the benefits are. And I think the last couple of weeks for the crypto skeptics and the NFT skeptics and the metaverse skeptics. There's been so many uh, stories that were depressing for the lovers. Uh, and I think the most funny one was, of course, with this Malaysian guy who wanted to resell the first tweet of Jack Dorsey. I don't know if you've seen that. Uh, I think it was about a year ago when he acquired that first tweet of Jack Dorsey through an NFT. I think he paid about $2.8 million dollars for it. And now he placed it on sale and his hope was to gain $48 million dollars from the first tweet. And after two weeks, the highest bid was like $210. I think after a few days later, it was $12,000. And I think what I've seen now, the highest bid was around $30,000. So it completely lost its value. And this is interesting. Yeah? This, a lot of people jump into this and say, oh, this is the evidence that NFTs are worthless, that it's a big hype. 
And I think they are partly right. I think that probably 99% of all the NFTs that are being sold in the hope that people will become millionaires because of that, that will be a big disappointment. Question is, why are some successful? Why are the bored apes, for instance, so successful? And, and it's a silly image of a bored ape. What a lot of people forget in that case, for instance, is that there's a smart contract involved that you own all the IP of the board apes and that you can actually start a business around that. So you have people who start to make t-shirts, you have people who start to make restaurants, you have people who start to make cartoons. So they're creating an entire business around the board ape and they basically didn't bought a GPAC of this crazy character, but they bought IP that they're going to work with. So it's interesting to look at the difference between failure and success and to dive a little bit deeper into that. But the truth is that 99% of those cases will become complete disasters for the people who put money into that. And the same with Metaverse. There was a, a research done this month by a company called Piper Sandlers, and they do a Gen Z research two times a year. And this time, this episode, it was about the Metaverse and the intention of youngsters to actually spend time in the Metaverse. And, you know, um, they surveyed 7,000 teenagers and about 26% of them own a VR device. But it's only 18% that uses it more than once a month. You have a diehard group of 5% that uses it daily, but the majority is still in doubt. There's other research as well. Uh, if you then look at the gaming community by itself, uh, more niche, and when you interview gamers, then you get a completely different result. Then you get the fact that more than half of the gamers actually feel better in the metaverse than in the real world, which is also a little bit scary. So it's very spread out. There's cases of success, there are cases of failure, there's research that is saying teenagers love the metaverse, there are cases where the research points out in the other direction. For me, the conclusion of all what happened and all this research is that Web3 and the metaverse is not some sort of pot of gold that you need to find. And once you found it, that it's going to be very easy to be successful with it. I think that this will be a technology, will be a situation, a context where you really need to create those customer benefits, customer engagement, create value that just goes beyond the technology to make sure that people will actually use it. In that perspective, it's really interesting to see what Lego will develop. Uh, Lego came out with a press release that they're going to work together with Epic Games and they want to make a child-friendly metaverse uh, because Lego is concerned that the decentralization part will be not so successful and that maybe a company like Meta, Facebook will become extremely successful and that you will still have centralization of power and that we, you know, we all know that Facebook isn't that good in controlling the information that you're exposed to. So Lego is like, if we put children out there in the metaverse of Facebook, who knows what they will bump into? So we need to create this child-friendly environment, this teenager-friendly environment to make it safe for them to work in. And Epic Games is jumping on that wagon to help Lego with that. So there are a number of things happening. I think in the next couple of months, we're going to see so many disaster stories about what doesn't work in the metaverse and in Web3. And I'm 100% convinced that all the success stories will be about creating value for customers in a way that it is easy to understand for the customer what those benefits are. I'm 300% convinced about that. I think you're right, uh, Stephen. I've been relatively skeptical about the uptake of Web3. I, it's one of those things where 
If I look at the longer future, I fully, fully buy that. But this is, we've seen that a couple of times in the last two, three decades where something new comes on the horizon, people jump on it, and there's more enthusiasm than I think realism sometimes. And that means that there are going to be, you know, accidents waiting to happen. So I fully agree. I think it's going to be relatively easy to probably lose your brand a little bit in the metaverse or get into a partnership that really doesn't pan out the way that you want because you don't have full control. Mm -hmm. If I would be Lego, I would be very, very careful to make sure that whatever I engage with and on is going to be something that will really enhance my brand and my relationship with my customers. And there are indeed quite a lot of slippery roads ahead uh, for companies mm -hmm. who want to engage. Yeah, question is, uh, why would Lego partner up with Epic Games? I mean, Lego has a much stronger brand than Epic Games. Okay, Epic Games has the technology to move into the gaming world, but Lego has done a lot there as well. I mean, it, maybe it would be smarter for them to slow down and do it on their own and create a Lego metaverse. I don't know. But don't underestimate the amount of technological expertise you need to really build that out at scale. I mean, building a prototype, building a demo, that's easy. But doing that at scale, and Epic has really proven that they are experts at that. I mean, if mm -hmm. you want that's to true. engage millions and millions of gamers simultaneously, and let's be honest, Web3 is a little bit more complex than just building a relatively simple gaming environment. I mean... This is uh, in terms of, of load, in terms of capacity, in terms of scale, something that is a magnitude higher. Mm -hmm. And if you're Lego and your main focus is really on getting those bricks in the stores and in the e-commerce platforms, then I don't think you necessarily have the time to build up that expertise. So I think yeah, it makes true. sense to partner true. on that. I think yeah. uh, it would take them too long. And then by that time, somebody else could have eaten their lunch. Yeah, yeah true. Good point. You said, Stephen, when you talked about the metaverse, about the decentralized part, but um, for the moment, most metaverse platforms are not decentralized. Like mm -hmm. the one of Meta is not Web3, the one of Roblox is not Web3. You have Decentraland, which is indeed decentralized and, and Web3, but we often talk about metaverse and Web3, and there are parts of metaverse, obviously, which are Web3, like the use of NFTs that are sold within these platforms. But I just wanted to add that not all of them are decentralized. That's the dream, I think, because I know that Meta is looking into blockchain for the metaverse. So, But for the moment, I don't think it is. Peter, is, is that correct, what I'm saying? It's absolutely true. And it could probably be, be a very similar situation as we saw with the browsers. I remember, you know, this is a long time ago, but with the advent of Web 1 and then Web 2, there was the whole browser wars, if you remember that. And I don't know which browsers you use. I mean, what, what, Laurence, what is your number one browser that you use? Damn it's it. not a trick question. It's a simple question. <laughs> no, but I, 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 it's, it's Mozilla. Okay. Steven? Safari. A Safari. And Pascal? Uh, Alta Vista. No, I'm joking. Uh, it's, it's Google Chrome. <laughs> it's Google Chrome. So Mozilla is a really, really nice initiative that was you know, not for profit. It was open. It was you know, trying to combat the evil concentration. Really great. But only a small fraction of the users actually use Mozilla at scale. 
And I think what we might be looking at in Web3 is very similar. I mean, we might see some really, really interesting and really, really scalable solutions in the next phase of VR, which are going to be run in a very centralized environment. And then you have the completely, wonderfully open, decentralized, cleaner than clean that is interesting from an academic point of view, but just doesn't get the real uptake. So mm-hmm. I think that that could be a very likely scenario that's playing out. I see in China this uh, very much playing out this, this way because, I mean, decentralized, of course, is not the, the ideal formula for the Chinese internet. And so uh, the Chinese companies, Tencent, Alibaba, all of them are, are putting really huge amount of money into the meta right now. And they're really believing this is the future. And the government and the regulators are, are kind of like letting it happen because they don't really know where this is going. But they're not waiting for any regulation to start building this whole platform because they know at one point the formula will be figured out and the government will want to have a say on it. And so that will be the moment where the Chinese meta will come to life. And this will probably, as Peter says, be mostly centralized. But meta is big in China, huge. Yeah. And you know, like the metaverse or VR, it is a social platform. If I look at my son, he's having the best time in the metaverse when he can play together with his friends, then he's totally excited. So the platform that has the biggest reach brings the biggest value to the user. And today that is Facebook. And I'm very skeptical about a decentralized uh, metaverse, just like you guys, because if you look at what Facebook has to offer, 3.5 billion people on their platforms, They have the money, they have the talent. I think they are the party to beat in this. This is going to be really interesting to see if you can find someone that can bring as many people together to reach to the mass audience to really make a difference here. Yes, same in China with Tencent. They're the leader in in this new uh, metaverse. It's clear, it's it's the number of users and number of players and and gamers and so on, put them all together. That's, That's where the value will be for many. Peter, I want to jump to a different topic. You shared this article with me about WorldCoin that is recruiting test users in a very, I mean, I've read the article that you shared, and can I say that, in a very shady kind of way in Indonesia. They're getting data from people, specific data, and it's very unclear what will happen there. So I'm very curious to hear you explain the story of WorldCoin to us. I think it's one of the most fascinating stories that is unfolding at this moment. It has all the ingredients of like a really, really good evil James Bond movie. I mean, it's uh, it's when it's I just... when I read the, the the article, I was like, I have to write a Ford thriller because this is <laughs> this is like the script is ready here. So I was well, as excited. Truth is stranger than fiction. So Worldcoin is an initiative that has been like a, a really well kept secret over the last couple of years. This is a cryptocurrency company called WorldCoin that was founded by none other than Sam Altman. So Sam Altman is basically well known for being the founder and president of Y Combinator. So it's like the elite venture capital incubator in Silicon Valley. If you are a company that is basically guided by Sam Altman, then you have like a ticket to ride because you are absolutely gold. Um, He's the one who famously, for example, took Airbnb from just a couple of guys with an idea into, into the stratosphere. So if Sam Altman says, this is a good idea, people listen. 
So WorldCoin is a company that wants to use cryptocurrency to actually basically prove who you actually are. So it's a company around identity. And I believe this is one of the most exciting areas in technology in the next couple of years, because identity is one of the trickiest things to actually get right. I mean, Stephen, how do you prove that you are Stephen van Belgem? How do you do that? I have in the real world my passport. In the online world, I have my fingerprint, my face ID, my passwords. That's about it. And you have a passport and you have an identity card, right? I mean, yeah. that's one of the strange because you're a Belgian citizen. You mm -hmm. have a passport, which is basically a little piece of cardboard and a number of paper sheets that have been imprinted with a special mark to try and prove that you can actually go into another country. I mean, how incredibly 17th century is that, <laughs> right? And then online, you said, oh, I have my passwords, but how do you actually prove online that you are who you are? It's and that is one of the, yeah. it's well, it's one of the really crucial things. Pascal, how do you do that? No, I just have my wife. She proves that I exist. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, th this is one of the very strange culturally different things because we in Belgium, we have an identity card. And if you travel abroad, you have a passport. In the US, for example, there is no identity card because as you all know, many people in the US have to prove via their driver's license that they actually are who they are. In the UK, it's even more hilarious because the UK does not have an identity card either. They had briefly an identity card during the Second World War because, you know, for all sorts of security reasons, they needed that. And then a while ago, there was this really strange incident in the UK. In 2006, they said, why don't we actually have an identity card after all these years. And then for a very brief couple of years, they really worked on building a national identity register. And four years later, they threw it out of the window again. So across the globe, it's not as simple to actually prove who you are. And if you want to move a lot of people into cryptocurrency, that is one of the most difficult things there is. There's a famous thing in finance called KYC, which stands for Know Your Customer. And it is one of the most difficult things that a bank has to do. It's now one of the most difficult things that any crypto or neo bank has to do. Because to give you a, a very personal anecdote, my daughter, who is now 23, is a big Revolut user. Since the last couple of weeks, she has been harassed by Revolut to actually understand who she is, where her money's coming from, and her response is, it comes from my parents. So now I'm being harassed to say, where is my money coming from? <laughs> and it's really interesting because the whole KYC thing hinges on one thing, which is identity. How does Revolut know that I'm not a Russian oligarch or that you know I'm actually the person that I claim to be? Anyway, that's the whole context that WorldCoin was founded. And WorldCoin was founded by, as I said, Sam Altman. Since it started, it has received more than $100 million in venture capital. To give an idea, uh, Andreessen Horowitz is one of the big backers. They're now at a $3 billion valuation. And what they want to do is they want to build a new global digital currency where they want to give free cryptocurrency to every single human on the planet. But that is not the aim to build a currency. It's the aim that this is going to actually be a form of identity. 
So it's what they call POP, proof of personhood. I mean, it's, it's one of those hottest things that are out there. So, so far, brilliant idea. And then something really strange happened. They said, how are we going to do that? How are we going to get everybody on the world linked to an identity using cryptocurrency? Well, the whole idea is around the concept of an orb. Now, this is where it gets really strange. The orb is a device that they built which looks like a completely smooth disco ball. So it's a chrome-based device. It's about the size of a bowling ball. And what you do is that if you look into the orb, and this sounds very Sauron type of it, but if you look into the orb, it's going to scan your iris, then generate a piece of their WorldCoin unique cryptocurrency. And that is going to be an identifier where you can actually use all around the world to identify who you actually are. So it's a biometric system. You look into the orb, and the moment that your eyes are locked into the orb, they know and can put you on an Ethereum-based blockchain, and forever you can use that identity to prove who you actually are. Ah, that sounds very sci-fi-like. Uh, but it's actually showing how difficult it is going to be to actually build a system where everybody on the planet has a unique identity. So far, we've relied on countries to do that. Or in the online world, we've relied on, say, a Gmail account or a Facebook account to make that happen. What if you would build a global concept based on cryptocurrency where everybody on the planet has a unique identifier and which is not linked to governments. Because, I mean, let's give the example of the Ukraine, for example. At this moment, if you turn 18 in the Ukraine, I'm not sure if there is even a government to actually issue you a Ukrainian ID at this moment. So how do you actually do that globally? WorldCoin is one of those companies based in the US, but also based in Germany and Erlangen. They've been building the orb. And then they said, how are we going to get every human to look into these disco balls? So they started out really in countries where there is very, very little identity. So a lot of it is in Africa, in Southeast Asia. A lot of people there don't even have identity. So therefore, they can't get into the financial system. So they are unbanked. They are in a circle of poverty. So they went to places where they thought this is an opportunity to do that. But then it got really shady. They hired orb operators who would actually have an incentive to sign up as many people to look into the disco ball as possible. These people would be given an incentive where they said, well, you can have $20 of our cryptocurrency and this might increase in value. A lot of people who stared into the eye thought, I'm going to be bloody rich because I'm one of the first <laughs> to stare into the disco ball. But now after a few months, one, it's really difficult to scale it that way. There are a lot of people who are complaining that you know, they looked into the orb and you know, it's still nothing. And it seems to be like at this moment, there is very little to do. So a couple of weeks ago, MIT, which is one of the first times I've actually seen that, MIT did a really thorough investigative journalism report. And they said, we have been looking into WorldCoin because we love it as technology. But then we looked into the operations and more and more dirt has been coming up on WorldCoin. So there was a devastating article in the MIT Journal just a few weeks ago that basically says this is being run in the most amateuristic way possible. The company really hasn't responded. So I believe that this is one of those stories we're going to have to follow because they've now scanned almost 450,000 people who stared into the Chrome Orb. So that's not nothing. But at the same time, that's 
really peanuts if you want to scale it up to 8 billion people that eventually they want to stare into the orb. What it shows two things is one, the whole concept of proof of personhood, identity, is going to be one of the most difficult things that we have to try and figure out to get right. But it's not going to be something that we do just overnight. This is going to take maybe decades. But I think it's one of those cornerstones. The 21st century, if we can crack identity on a global scale, then I think we can do things that we've never dreamt of. The second thing that I have as a conclusion is that going from a wonderful idea with brilliant technology to actually making that scale and making that stick, well, there are some really roller coaster up and downs on that journey. But it's one of those really juicy stories that I am going to keep following because I think it is absolutely fantastic. And the question is like to solve the identity part, can you do that without the support of governments? I think that this is something that you need to do instantly on a more regulated basis and a more coordinated with the government. Otherwise, I mean, you can get maybe 500,000 people, maybe 2 million, maybe 10 million, but to get the whole planet on something, I'm not sure if you can do this without the support of governments. Well, it's a good question, but look at what Facebook has done. I mean, how many times do you go to a website where it says, how do you want to log on using your Gmail account or your Facebook account? I mean, uh, Facebook is close to 3 billion people Mm -hmm. where they're actually, you know, trying to figure out to uh, authenticate them. And of course, what do they know? They know basically where you are approximately. They, of course, know a lot about your habits. They don't know necessarily whether your age is correct or whether your, you know, your gender, for example, might be correct. I mean, you could be lying there. Mm -hmm. But if these types of companies can actually make that next step, then I think it's going to be really, really interesting to Mm -hmm. see what kind of an enormous power that they can wield. So I think, honestly, the big question is going to be who's going to crack the identity. And maybe you're right. Maybe you can't do it without governments, but there are plenty of governments in the world that might not be as trustworthy as others and where this could actually have a really big impact if you want to get a lot of people into the next generation of the economy. Imagine that uh, Facebook succeeds in changing Oculus into a mass product like the iPhone was, that suddenly 2 billion people have an Oculus that they use a couple of times a week and that you have an iris scanning software included in that technology that could make it a lot easier to do that than to have a disco ball that has to travel around the world. Well, I mean, you're right, but you don't have to look even that far. I mean, how many people are now unlocking their phone just with their eyes? Mm -hmm, I mean, you don't need iris scanning in a VR headset. I mean, just a simple phone now these days has Mm -hmm. enormous biometric capabilities. So it might be Apple or it might be Google with Android who has maybe an enormous potential to do that. I don't think you even need to go to VR for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. Yeah, cool stories. Thanks for sharing that, Peter. We're going to change gear here and we're going to move from blockchain to lockdown. Pascal, the entire world is looking at Shanghai and is saying, are they completely crazy there in China? When will they change their strategy or what is behind the idea of that zero COVID strategy? Is there something else going on than just keeping COVID out? Tell us the behind-the-scenes stories of the lockdown. <laughs> yeah, no, the lockdowns in Shanghai have been uh, quite intense. And uh, I've lived in Shanghai for uh, 18 years and have lots of friends, both foreigners as Chinese, living there now. 
locked up and it's not in the metaverse, it's in the real world. So they, they really have to figure out how to get food. And if you look at the 25 million people that are locked down right now in Shanghai, you really see that their real worry is uh, testing positive. It's not COVID. So very few people in China are actually worried to get COVID, but to test positive. The reason is, I mean, there's not been many deaths so far in China, uh, but it's more that if you test positive, then you have to go to one of these COVID quarantine centers, which you've probably seen the images. I mean, some of them are really, really terrible. Shanghai did not do a very good job at it. And so there's been terrible stories uh, going around the world, which are, are all true. You know, as far as I can verify them from friends that live in Shanghai, children being separated by families. A couple of weeks ago, you had that pets being abandoned was one of the biggest issues actually in China. So you are taken away in Shanghai to a COVID center and your pets stayed at home. And unless you have someone that takes care of them, it's a big issue. And Shanghainese are, are huge pet lovers these days. So that's that's one of the issues. But with children, of course, it's even more uh, tragic if, if that happens. That has now changed that regulation. So children cannot be separated from their parents anymore. But that happened in the beginning. Uh, but the other issue is the hospitals. They're just overloaded, just like everywhere in the world when we had too many COVID patients. It's got strained on the hospitals. But in China, uh, you actually had to give a proof that you were testing negative before you could go to a hospital, which means that sometimes it took some time before you could actually get to a hospital. Now, people who urgently need to get to the hospital don't have time to go and get a test and get the results. So this has been maybe people have actually died uh, simply because they couldn't get medical care. So this has been terrible. And uh, what we've seen is uh, is that it's, it got the economy uh, stalled as well because the port is completely stuck. There's thousands of ships, container ships, waiting to be shipped uh, out of Shanghai, but also to actually dock their goods into the, the Chinese market. So the economical uh, impact is quite, quite big. Factories have been closed for now almost a month. So it started on April 1st. And the whole idea was that by April 20. With the measures that uh, the government had expected or, or wants Shanghai to do, that after April 20, it should be down to zero again. That was the expectation. Now we're 25th or 26th. I mean, right now you see that it's still 20,000 infections every day almost. And so it, it hasn't gone to zero. So this is a big, big issue. And the factories were closed. The shops were closed. Everything's closed. I mean, this is like a ghost town, Shanghai. I can't imagine it having lived there. But now since last week, they reopened factories, uh, about 700 of them, uh, but they have to live in closed bubbles, which means that the employees cannot leave the factory. They work there, they sleep there. And so this is a quite weird situation, but specifically Tesla has been opened again, uh, General Motors, Syke, and so on, the big SMIC, the, the, the chip factories. So the most important factories have been reopened. But the reality is that most of the Shanghainese and we've seen those images. Many of them have actually been really frustrated, angry, spoken out. So if there's a, a belief that in China people uh, are afraid to speak out, this is the opposite proof that actually people are not afraid to speak out. I mean, you see it in apartments, people shouting that it's it's gone too far. The biggest issue that most Shanghainese are saying is that it's, it's going to have a psychological toll uh, that is unknown because now you see that people are going... It's really go to the to the extreme and they can't cope with it. And if you look at the whole problem, the biggest problem has been deliveries, delivery of food, uh, because many people in Shanghai are singles. 
just because they've moved there for study, for work, and so on. And so their parents may be still in the rural site, rural areas, and so they live on their own. And so they don't even have a kitchen very often. And so if you don't have a kitchen, what you do in Shanghai with the delivery being so efficient, I mean, you remember when we visited JD.com, I mean, it goes into minutes to deliver any product. Well, that's not possible anymore because the delivery people are also in lockdown. And so this is, is creating a huge uh, strain on people who are used. So they're kind of dependent on that delivery system to actually get their food. And when that doesn't work because delivery can't get, it's now all organized by the government. And so it's in bulk delivery mo mostly. And so most people are kind of uh, dealing with it okay. So what I did is um, I asked a few friends in Shanghai, both foreigners and Chinese, to say, what is going on? I mean, this is not normal. And I'm so happy for once that I'm not in Shanghai. And they said to me, well, it really depends. And I got very different stories from one person to the other. Some people say, yeah, this is terrible. And, and most foreigners I talk to, they say, as soon as the lockdowns are over, I'm out here. I don't want to come to China anymore. And so many, it's about 40% is the statistics that I read of uh, foreigners, expats, and people working for foreign companies that say, I don't want to stay here. So there's going to be a lot of losses, specifically teachers. And so if you don't have the teachers teaching in the international schools, you can't send the kids to schools, which means the foreign companies can send expats to, to Shanghai. So this will be a huge impact for the foreign community in Shanghai, which makes Shanghai quite unique as a city because most foreigners in China live in Shanghai because it's the most international city. Now, I've also asked it to a lot of Chinese friends and some foreigners who really been in China for 20, 25 years, and they say, well, no, I'm not leaving here. This is still fantastic. You in the West, it's the story I always get, you think this is like an apocalypse, we're like we're all dying here, but it's not true. I mean, these things happen, the stories are real, but they're in specific districts, and the blame has to be put on the Shanghai government. So a lot of Chinese feel that it's not the Chinese government, but the Shanghai government that did a bad job. And so this is a story that isn't told that much. And the reason is because many other cities like Shenzhen and Xi'an and Wuhan, if you remember, I mean, they were locked down for 76 days. Many of these cities actually got it back to zero within two, three weeks time. And so why did Shanghai was not able to do that? And so then you get the stories like, yeah, but Shanghai first closed half of the city and then the other half of the city. And so that doesn't work because the virus just doesn't stop to take the boats to the other side of the city. I mean, and so the city government and the party in Shanghai is getting blamed. And so very clear, there's going to be lots of heads rolling after the lockdowns are over. The interesting thing or the unexpected thing is that we in the West feel very often in Europe, in America, that this could be like a tipping point where it's really like there's a revolution happening. A lot of people are so angry. And in Shanghai, there's thousands that are really upset because specifically if they live in these districts with a lot of problems. But at the same time, most of Chinese, they are more trusting the central government because Shanghai did not follow the rules of the central government and everywhere else they did, actually it worked. And so it creates a complete opposite direction than we expect it to happen. So most Shanghainese are upset, but I have a very good friend who lives in Shanghai and he's actually become a volunteer in this uh, moon suit going everywhere to help people. And he's saying in his district where he is, in Xuhui district, he says, it's pretty okay. Hospitals are fine. The quarantine centers are fine. He says the people who've been in quarantine, they're not complaining. 
but he knows of these stories. So the idea that we have that the Chinese would not know of what is happening in Shanghai is also not completely true. But it is a tragedy. And right now, if you look at the numbers, there have been 500,000 people infected in Shanghai over the last month. So since the 1st of April, there's been 87 deaths. Uh, so it's not zero. It was a long time standing at zero, and then it went to two and then to 12. And, and so everybody was saying, yeah, they're probably covering it up. And now it's growing really fast. But it's also growing fast because typically when the virus is actually going to a plateau or going down, then the deaths are still rising quite quickly because there's a delay in people dying, of course, uh, going into intensive care. And so what we see now is that it's going down. So it's now at, at less than 20, around 20,000 per day. But more important, it's at 1,500 symptomatic cases, which has gone really down very fast. So the expectation of the government, the expectation of the people is that now it's on its way back to COVID zero. And so most Chinese, unexpectedly to what the images we see, actually believe that this will still go back to zero. And so there's been a lot of discussions I've had, like with Omicron, you just can't stop this. That was my statement as well, and the statement that many people have. I just came back from Norway. I mean, there's no measures whatsoever. But in China, they still feel that um, it's not going down enough in the world. There's still too many people dying, specifically when they saw what happened in Hong Kong just two months ago, that they can't take the risks. And there's also a problem with the vaccinations, that the first vaccines, uh, the first and second shot, there was about 80, 85%. I mean, more than 1.2 billion people got vaccinated. But because the virus is not really in China as much over the whole country, very few people took the booster shot. So there's actually less than 50% of the Chinese that took a booster shot. And so they're actually not vaccinated, and specifically old people. And all the people that died in Shanghai, almost all of them were actually older people that were unvaccinated. And so from the Chinese point of view, and I'm talking about the population, I'm not talking about uh, the government. It's like, yeah, the, that proves again that our vaccine works. They feel they cannot let the measures go because they are too worried. And this has to do a lot with the Chinese culture, which we don't talk about a lot that uh, the old people would die, and they are the most respected into the Chinese society. And for them, it's really a big issue. So my expectation is that if you look at what's happening, a lot of foreigners will leave China because of the lockdowns. Uh, a lot of foreign companies are going to decouple from China because they cannot just be dependent on supply chain. I don't see the investment in China to sell into the market changing from the foreign side. I don't see the Chinese having any different impression on how they will deal with the virus in the future. They will still go into lockdowns when needed. But I do believe that a lot of Shanghainese are, are quite upset and some richer Shanghainese might leave the country as well. They will continue the lockdowns until uh, the world has actually less and less uh, uh, people dying. And so that's still not today. So terrible situation. You, you saw the real face of Chinese, that they are not always just doing and saying what the government wants. They, when it goes too far, they actually are shouting out. But you also see that most Chinese actually still follow the rules because they do believe that this is the only way to cope with it and get through with it. And will they ever let go of the zero COVID strategy? Because they're going to be the country with less cases in the world, so they will have to catch up in terms of immunity after a while. And a second question to that, do you think this is also a strategy not just to save lives, but to make sure that Chinese people stay more in their own country and that it becomes more difficult for foreigners to get into China? 
No, that I don't think so. Um, because if you look at the restrictions, they've actually lowered the quarantines to get into China from 40 days to 10 days. What they're doing in China, and that's typical the Chinese way, is they're testing things to actually loosen the measures little by little, like very, very little, and then check, does this work? Can we cope with it? You can do a lot more self-monitoring or self-testing now than you could a couple of months ago. Uh, they're much more organized in the communities to actually help people that are in lockdown. Because we're talking about Shanghai, but just this week, two days ago, Beijing got 13 new cases. And so you could quickly see how fast the community just uh, got organized to lock down a whole apartment block and deliver everything. So it's more a matter of letting it go step by step rather than say, we're going from a red code to an orange code to, or to yellow code. And then suddenly it's like half of the things are now possible. No, it's, it's very, very slowly, but it is happening. Mm -hmm. and, and China realizes they have to let go at one point, but they're not just going to let it go. They're, they're testing in certain cities. And I think that's a sound thing. Maybe that's something we should also have done to test more the letting go of the restrictions than, than just to let it go for everywhere. So I don't think this is going to change a lot. But when, nobody knows. Yeah. That's the whole question. I think more the perception of the world towards China has changed so much in doing business with China that this will create a different type of uh, priority. Do we want to do business with China or maybe we're going to go to another country in the future? Yeah. Well, thanks for explaining that. And uh, I want to stay on the topic of a decline in popularity. Just a quick question, Laurence, do you have Netflix stock shares from Netflix? <laughs> no, I do not. Skull, do you own some? <laughs> no, I don't, no. Peter? No, no, I don't. No, okay, but, uh, neither do I. So that's that's why we're God. all still happy. Uh, they lost a bunch of subscribers. The stock fell with 40%. Uh, Peter, what's going on? Well, it was um, maybe, I, I don't know how much uh, Netflix you watched during the pandemic, but... Uh, we certainly saw a huge increase in our household because I finally had the time to do some serious binge watching. I think we, we probably all have our favorites during that period. I think for us, it's Ozark and, and Better Call Saul. I mean, probably two of my absolute favorites, but a lot of people did a lot of Netflix watching during the pandemic. A lot of people got hooked. And I think the pandemic was a great example of the perfect environment for a company like Netflix to really thrive. But the pandemic is over. Well, not in Shanghai, but, you know, <laughs> uh, in most of the world. And as a result is maybe more and more people said, you know, do we still need to pay for that expensive Netflix account uh, every month? So what happened is they lost uh, 2 million subscribers in the last quarter. Uh, to give you an idea, uh, the quarter before that, they lost 200,000 subscribers. This is 10x. So they lost 2 million subscribers. And the stock exchange resulted, uh, it just had a, a panic attack. I mean, shares of Netflix fell 40%. To give you an idea, that means that they lost $60 billion in market value basically overnight when those numbers came out. So I think it's a clear uh, sign of market saturation. I mean, I remember when we went to Netflix for the first time years ago, you could see the growth in subscribers and you thought, wow, this is going to go on forever. But it doesn't. I mean, you know, streaming companies, of course, are getting a lot more competitive. 
it's not just Netflix anymore. It's Disney Plus. It's Amazon. And there are local streaming initiatives in many, many different countries. So there's an abundance of choice. Um, there's only a limited amount of people, and there's really just a limited amount of time that you have to actually spend on that. And if you look at it, many people started to add it up, and then you know a subscription here, a subscription there, it adds up to real money for some families who said, you know what, maybe we have to cut this. At the same time, the company also announced that it wants to crack down on people who are sharing Netflix accounts. I don't know if you have, you know, any people that you know that do this, but it is, of course, a vile thing. Uh, one of my favorites is this wonderful story. I don't know if you've heard it, but I, I love this story. There was this house guest who stayed at a family and who for years actually was using their account. And of course, if you log on to Netflix, you have, you know, in my case, it's mom and dad and you, know, you have the kids. And this person was a house guest that stole the password of the family they were staying with. And they stayed in there because they had actually an icon called settings. I mean, the account was called settings and they hid behind that for years because none of the family members would ever get into the settings account, which is, I think, really, really creative. Netflix thinks that there are more than a hundred million people who are actually using Netflix that are basically using other people's credentials or accounts. And they said, we want to crack down on that. And I think that is the second thing that really sent shutters down the stock market. Because the moment that as a company, you have to hunt down your illegal customers, that's just not a really positive sign that you're confident about the future. So I think it's interesting. The other thing that was announced is that Netflix says, you know what, we might actually build an advertising supported version of Netflix. And if there's one thing that I love about Netflix is that there are no advertisements. And the fact that Netflix is actually willing to rethink that, the, the, the market really reacted very, very badly. But for me, it's a great example that uh, unlimited growth, unfortunately, is a pipe dream. At the certain moment, it has to end, and Netflix is really in a situation that it lost massively as a result of that. Yeah, and I'm also questioning if the timing of their price increase was a smart one. Yeah. Like, beginning of this year, they increased prices for everyone, probably because they wanted to boost revenues as they saw that, you know, growth of users was declining they looked in other ways to make more money right at the time when the war in, in Russia and Ukraine started, right at the time that we had price increases in energy, the moment that every consumer is thinking about, you know, lowering the costs of their household. That was the moment that Netflix decided to increase prices for all their customers. So I, I think that timing was the worst timing they could have chosen to done that. I mean, the, the moment that people right. are, are thinking about how can we save money? And then you trigger them with a price increase. Then they were like, ah, oh, yeah, of course, we still have this Netflix subscription here. Let's cancel that one. I, I think that was a big, big mistake of them. I think you're probably right. And at the same time, a lot of people were having a little bit of a fatigue. I mean, mm -hmm. if you do a price increase and you have really, really cool new content that you have a must watch, yeah. I mean, you're not going to cancel. But if people said, you know what, I'm kind of tired. I mean, I spend a half an hour just browsing around looking yeah. for something to watch and then you get a price increase. That is just really, really bad timing. Uh, it's, it's a word that I learned during our last tour in LA, the Netflix syndrome. <laughs> and you're absolutely right with what you just said, Peter. It takes on average 40 minutes 
per user to find a new show once you're done with one, because it's the paradox of choice, right? There's so much content on there that we don't find any show anymore that we like, or our expectations are really high. We want to have this really cool thing. You love Ozark, and then you look for the next Ozark, but you cannot find it. And then everything else is, you know, you just don't like it that much. And then it's losing its value. So this is really interesting. We left traditional TV because we went to a platform that has better quality content and that has no advertising and that we can choose to watch whatever we want at whatever time we want. Now, if you listen to what Netflix is thinking about, it's introducing advertising and it's reorganizing their content in a more linear way so that we can find it better than we used to. And basically, you end up with linear TV that they're going to be making in just a few years from now. So th this is a really crazy thing that is happening here. I don't think it's going to be linear TV, but I think if they're not going to be able to maintain the quality content that people have associated with, then mm -hmm. they're absolutely into trouble. And of course, let's be honest, there's only that much creative capabilities out there to actually do something that is truly awesome. Yeah. And, and, and I think Netflix over the years have suffered a lot from the fact that there's a lot of low quality content that got onto the platform because they wanted to you know find something for everybody but i think uh, w w they're at a very interesting point because if they want to reinvent themselves this is the absolute time to do it and i believe the only way to do it is with even more premium quality content mm -hmm. yeah maybe uh, reduce the amount of content and just bring out flagship top brands uh, it's yeah. like in the early days everyone went to netflix to see house of cards yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, we have it the same in our family. And, uh, and and just indeed having to spend 10, 20, 30 minutes to look for that next thing is just frustrating. What I've also realized, and it's quite interesting, is that we are spending more time if there's nothing on the regular television before switching to Netflix because we don't want to spend that 30 minutes uh, looking around if there's anything interesting. And so the normal television or the the, the programs that, that have the advertisement are getting our favor to, to watch because we know at least uh, that we don't have to spend half an hour to look for a Netflix series. Quite, quite weird. I want to introduce another stock. We had the, the dramatic story of Netflix losing 40% of its value overnight. I'm becoming a bigger and bigger fan of the fashion retailer Lululemon. If you look at their stock evolution of the last five years, it's pretty exceptional for a retailer because if you invested in them five years ago, you would have an increase of 600% today in your value. With a company that is basically selling sport outfits and fashion like you would see in many other stores. So it's interesting to look into their story. And um, this is one of these fashion retailers that isn't just a fashion retailer. Their purpose, as they mention it themselves, is to elevate the world by realizing the full potential with every one of us. So they want people to look good, to people to stand out. And there are a number of things that they do to make that happen. They make fashion that helps you to work out and makes you look good. But about, I think it was a year ago, they made this acquisition of Mirror, a company that is making mirrors, uh, smart mirrors that you can use in your home to do workouts, uh, which was, of course, during the pandemic, a huge hit, just like Peloton bikes were, these mirror um, experiences were really cool because you could have a personal trainer from the comfort of your own home. So they bought that, I think, for half a billion US dollars. And a lot of people thought, hey, this is strange. This is a retailer 
that moves into working out, that moves into the world of sports, that is moving into the world of technology. Why are they changing lanes? But if you look at their core purpose, trying to elevate the world by realizing the full potential of every one of their customers, it kind of makes sense. Uh, they want you to look good and you have fashion for that, but working out is also part of that. And that's why they bought this company called Mirror. And now this week, they announced a new loyalty program. I've been very skeptical about traditional loyalty programs of companies. I think they are more and more old-fashioned, huh? like you have to buy 10 breads and then you get the 11th for free. Or you go to the supermarket, you have to scan your card, and when you have 500 points, you get 5 euros discount. I mean, it, that doesn't create loyalty, in my opinion. So what Lululemon wants to do is create a membership to increase loyalty, as they mentioned. And the interesting part is, is that it's actually a double kind of membership. You can have a free membership where you log in, and then they will give you content and all kind of cool stuff. At least that's, that's what they mention, and that's what they claim to make you more connected to the brand. But what I find interesting is that one of these new loyalty programs is actually a paying program. They invite you to pay $39 a month, which is like four times the amount of money that we spend on a Netflix subscription. So it's not cheap. But what they offer is actually the opportunity to realize their purpose. They want you to feel good. They want you to stand out. They want you to make a difference. And when you access this membership of $39 a month, you get access to real-life events, to virtual events. They are going to offer you content to make you work out. You will be able to access fitness classes and they're going to help you to succeed in their purpose. So this is something that they launch. I don't know how many people will subscribe to this. Um, the goal is to make this link between the Mirror company and the fashion retailer, because people who are on Mirror already pay this $39 a month to have access to that platform. So they're going to merge the two. But I think this is interesting because it's, it's like Amazon Prime. You pay first as a customer, and because of that, you want to optimize your value, and because of that, you stay loyal to it. So the moment that you get enough value, you will step into this program. So I'm very curious to see how this will evolve. But I think this is a more interesting way to look at customer loyalty than creating a cart where you buy 10 breads and the 11th one is for free. You actually create a revenue model and you create a membership. And if that works out, you have the loyalty that people are looking into. If you look at it from a critical point of view, of course, you could say, are people open for another membership next to their Netflix and their Spotify? Time will tell, but I think it's interesting to see how a retailer is reinventing loyalty. Amazon Prime, I understand that because there is so many interaction points I have with Amazon mm -hmm. on a monthly basis that it makes sense to do that. Right. But am I going to have so much interaction with a very specific retailer mm -hmm. like Lulubon to actually justify almost $40 in terms of a membership? That seems like a pretty steep ambition curve for them, right? I'm, I'm just not sure if the numbers work out. Well, they took the number because this is the subscription that you pay when you own Mirror. And now they want to extend that to their retail customers. It's almost like a, a fitness subscription that you get here, right? To go to fitness classes, it's working out, it's events. And they really want to focus on this niche of people that likes to work out from the comfort of their own home. And they want to offer you a personal coach through that platform. That, that's going to be the core of it. That's going to be the main perk. And they already start with, I think, half a million customers because of Mirror. 
So it is an extension of that. And probably they hope that if you get that membership and if you get the personal coach on your computer or on your TV, that after a while you will buy the mirror. They're now having you experiment with the mirror in their stores as well to connect those two. So I agree, it's expensive, but so is a fitness subscription. And I think that the weakness of a retailer like Lululemon is exactly what you say. You only have a very limited number of interactions. So if they succeed in installing this, they solve that problem and suddenly you have maybe three or four times a week an interaction. And if you can connect that with online commerce, for instance, it could for them create an opportunity if they succeed in this. It's also more lifestyle. I it's think. lifestyle, yeah. And, and I it think that's, that's where it makes all the difference. Um, with Amazon Prime, I mean, it's still about buying stuff. And I see it in China often. Many companies are using this type of loyalty to offer, I mean, access to events, access to meet people. I mean, it's, it's, it's all about, yeah, just being part of a community. And mm -hmm. you want to pay to be part of a community. So I see it uh, in China, it works. So I wouldn't see why this wouldn't work in this context. Also, if you look at the fact that if we are, if obviously we are going to move into a decentralized web where it would be very difficult to track users, I think that a membership model could be really interesting there because marketing will be a lot more difficult to do. And, and if you, you keep people with you and you, you make them loyal, it could be interesting. Yeah, it's a very good point. What if we wake up in a world where you don't have access to your customer data anymore? You can solve that by creating value in such a way. Yeah. Laurence, I'm going to stay with you. You shared a bunch of topics with me about artificial intelligence and creativity. Can you give us an update about that? Uh, yes. So I indeed wanted to discuss some things that I noticed in the news with regards to AI and creativity. And uh, the first one that I saw is that OpenAI, also known for the GPT-3 content generation and also where Sam Altman uh, is CEO, where Peter talked about earlier. So they recently launched the second version of DALI, and it was truly impressive. Um, for those who don't know it, DALI is a fantastic neural network where you can create or edit images from really simple text, like you ask it uh, to create an image of a koala dunking a basketball or Maybe you could even ask it to create an image of Peter, Stephen and Pascal partying in a unicorn-shaped rocket. So it's really, really impressive to see how much and how fast this version evolved since the first one. It's a lot more realistic, more high resolution, more accurate, a lot faster at processing images. So really impressive. And then the second thing that I saw was that Apple announced an update of iMovie which almost completely automates the entire video editing process. And you just have to select an album or a group of photos and then Magic Movie, uh, which is how the program is called, is selecting the best parts of the footage and then automatically creates a video with titles, with transitions and with music. The only thing that the users have to do is adapt what they don't like. And I am not going to talk about the potential implications or loss of jobs and things like that, because we have already talked about this. But the reason why I wanted to talk about it is that in parallel with this, these evolutions, I also saw news feeds where there were old rules and old laws that were still not adapted to the evolution of AI. And the first one was that the U.S. Copyright Office 
once again rejected a copyright request for an AI-generated work of art. And the reason that they gave was that copyright is something that is the result of creative powers of the human mind. And it's understandable that they want to have laws to protect people like artists. But at the same time, I found it difficult to understand why they would punish the new makers of the art. And of course, this is really complex because who will you want to grant copyright to? Will it be the coder? Will it be the company he or she works for? Will it be the AI that created the artwork? So yes, it's complex, but that also does not mean that we should just ignore it. And then the other thing that I saw was that John Mueller, who is Google's SEO authority, he said in an interview, which I thought was really surprising, that the Google algorithm classifies AI-generated content from GPT-3 and other automatic content generators as spam. So they don't see these texts as quality content, no matter how human they seem. And again, I understand because often the texts that come from these automatic generator thingies are often garbage or funny. But I also find it strange because quite some established newspapers like Le Monde and Wall Street Journal, The Economist, BBC, Bloomberg, they all use AI to help them with content in some way or to translate content. And also Google itself is dabbling in creative AI with Project Magenta. And so just as an afterthought, I want to add that the fact that AI, creative or not, it has known many winters and it's always evolving slower than we think or want. That's true. But I also think that the development of AI might really speed up with the AR, VR, metaverse phenomenon because now AI gets its data in a quite a limited way with a limited view through a screen or, or via sensors. And, but with AR glasses or by immersing ourselves in a metaverse, we are potentially giving AI eyes on everything that we do, not just through a screen. And to conclude, I think that this will allow AI to evolve a lot faster. And we really should be thinking about rules that are adapted to this new world and not to the old one, which is what we seem to be doing now. Thank you for sharing that, uh, Laurence. It's impressive to see how fast things are going at this moment. Huh? And I think we're only at the beginning of this evolution. And what you said in the beginning, you know, loss of jobs and stuff like that, I think that the perception completely changed about that in the last couple of months because people are like, hopefully we will have AI that works better because we cannot find people anymore. The problem of finding talent is so high that people don't worry about the loss of jobs anymore. They worry about, can we get the job done? So uh, I think we need AI that goes into overdrive to help us out with that. Um, Pascal. Yes. Closing topic is for you, my friend. Okay. A new concept of NEO, battery as a service. Yep. What do you want to share about that? Well, uh, I'm just back from a week in Oslo on a Nextworks tour with EY. And uh, this was all about utilities, energy, electrical vehicles, electrification, e-mobility. I mean, it was a fantastic tour. It opened my eyes. So uh, where you have China as a, an energy at, at scale. There, it was a very different scale, but it was really interesting to see how this transformation is happening in Norway and way ahead of, of most places in the world. Uh, right now, if you look at Norway, already 83% of all new cars are electrical cars being sold. And in Oslo, it's almost 87%. So 
Norway is going completely electrical, electrical vehicle. It's amazing. I mean, you see Teslas everywhere on the street. It's, it's if you love Teslas, I mean, go to Oslo. It's it's like a paradise of Teslas. They have more than 500,000 EVs on the road right now. Norway has about 5 million people, a little bit more. So it's a lot of EVs, electrical vehicles. And everybody is charging at home. And there's a lot of charging places as well. So, so really a paradise for electrical vehicles. But then uh, we went to see NIO, which is a Chinese car brand that um, went public in 2018. It's one of those uh, Tesla challengers in China. There's like Li Auto. There's, uh, of course, uh, companies like Xpeng and, and uh, there's BYD. There's uh, GM, Saic, uh, 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 Shanghai Automotive, Hongqi. I mean, lots of brands. And the interesting thing from all these Chinese brands is they're all using Norway as an entry point into Europe. I mean, China is still more than 50% of all the EVs sold in the world. But the second biggest market is Europe. And America, the US, is really lagging behind when it comes to transformation. And so Chinese have seen, yeah, although the market in Norway is almost saturated, uh, when you see, I mean, the, 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 the number of, of cars being sold, having new brands in there is not going to be easy, but they feel that this has the right environment to push it to the rest of Europe. And so we can expect a lot of Chinese brands coming to Europe, electrical vehicle brands in the next uh, year. Now, NIO is very interesting. I mean, I've, I've always, we visited NIO with Nextworks like uh, in 2018. Yeah, yeah. Um, was did. that together with you? Yeah, I was there. Yeah, so, and, and Charlie Zhang, the VP, I think he talked to us about... Uh, his new world, his new future, and uh, and so on. So it was really interesting to see their first store outside of China being in Norway, in Oslo. Beautiful store, incredible. And really, because uh, we were talking about lifestyle, it had everything to do with lifestyle. It's like, yeah, you want to be part of this community. So it wasn't, the store didn't even feel like they wanted to show off their technology and, and their cars. It was really about, you're part of, of our community now. And so what I thought was interesting and wanted, wanted to share is this concept of battery as a service. Because one of the things that NEO and, and many of, of people uh, driving an, an EV have realized is that electrical vehicles, I mean, it's good for the environment, it's, but there are some challenges. I mean, the range of driving is often a challenge. So you need a, an expensive uh, Tesla to drive like 400 miles. Otherwise, you have a problem with your battery. Charging is often an issue as well. Can you find the chargers? Superchargers take like 30, 40, 50 minutes. I mean, it takes a long time before normal chargers get charged. So you want these superchargers, but they're not around or, or you have to wait. And so you have to book it. So a whole issue on the infrastructure right now to get everything charged. So if you don't have, you can do it at your home. It is not easy. Battery degradation is also a problem because if you supercharge constantly to 100%, we don't know how that will affect the battery. And so you're buying a car where actually the most important part could get degraded. And, and so what does that mean? And then, of course, the biggest issue is the price. I mean, the price of an EV is still at least 10,000 euros uh, more than, than a combustion engine. And, and so many people are kind of waiting right now that already have a car or, or they, they say, maybe my next car will be an EV, but not this one. And so Neo figured out this is really a, a problem that we can tackle in a very different way. And so they're selling an EV without the battery. So for them, it's like you buy the car at the price of the car, great cars, but the battery, you don't have to sell it, you rent it. Uh, and so you rent the, the battery that you want. And so the interesting thing is they separate the battery from the car 
from a sales perspective. And so you pay a monthly fee. And so the, the NEO uh, ES8, that's uh, kind of like an SUV type uh, six-seater. It's, it's a pretty impressive car. You can buy it at 55,000 euros. Uh, it's, it's really top end. But the battery itself is not included, which means you have to pay about 140 to 200 euros a month for the battery, depending on if it's a 75 kilowatt hour or 100 kilowatt hour. So you can choose, you can upgrade, you can downgrade. But the interesting thing is that you actually have a 67 or almost 70,000 euro car, but you only pay 55,000. And then the rest you just pay over month on a monthly subscription. And why is that interesting is that not just uh, the purchasing price, which is lower, but you can also get flexible upgrades because batteries improve in, in over time. Your battery could degrade, but it's not your problem anymore because you don't own the battery. Somebody else owns it. They always have to give you a top battery or the battery that you want. And so you always get the best battery that you want. It's very sustainable, of course, from a battery life cycle because of that. But what I found looking at this is the convenience. And when people explained how it worked, I could see people's eyes just, just lightening up and say, wow, this is pretty cool. Because what you do with your car, you go to one of these power battery swap stations. It's like a big garage box as a size. You park in front of it and then you press one button and then the car parks itself into the battery swap station. So you don't even have to do it. You stay inside. So what that means is if it's raining, if it's cold, I mean, there's no smell of, of, of fuel or, or you don't have to get dirty if you're in a costume or whatever. I mean, it's beautiful. And then it's six minutes, five to six minutes. The swap is done, you're gone. And so I could just see specifically, and this is interesting, uh, I saw a few women that were saying, I want this because I hate it to go to a charging station. And the whole audience that was there, they all had electrical vehicles. They all, most of them had Tesla, so it was quite interesting audience. But they, they, they just hated to go out there, have to wait for 30 minutes, go and eat something, go back or, or be outside in the rain or the cold. And, and so you could feel that some of the people were really saying, this is a cool solution. But what I specifically liked, besides the convenience, is that actually this is a grid extension. So you have like 13 batteries in one of these garage boxes or these swap battery stations. That's like 300 swaps that they can do every day. But these 13 batteries are constantly charging specifically at night when it's easier to charge them at a very low current. So it doesn't put strain on the grid. And so you have that actually a battery everywhere in the world. You could have lots of batteries just available and just help the grid when they need more energy at peak points and take back when they actually have an overcapacity of energy at other points. And so this is an extended battery for the physical world everywhere. And you could extend it to 26 batteries. I mean, this is 1.3 megawatt hour site that you could have easily or double uh, on many locations. And so they were explaining us, because in Norway, it's quite interesting. So most of these people in Norway, they all have cabins in the north. And so they, they go like, drive hours and hours to the north. And so when they get out of Oslo, normally what they have to do is they have to drive a long time, like an hour or two hours, three hours, and then they have to charge the battery and then drive another two, three hours. And so now what they can do is just go 30 minutes outside of Oslo, there's a station, they can charge immediately, five minutes and they're gone. And so they don't need to actually have the kids wait for 30 minutes after an hour drive 
for the battery to charge. And so people love it because it's it's really convenient. So at first, when I thought about battery as a service, my first idea is like, yeah, yet another system and will it work? Uh, I mean, we have all these charging stations already, but people don't like cables. People don't like to be outside. People want the convenience. And so this could take off. And NEO is, is actually opening up, so licensing its technology to other OEM manufacturers. So if this would work, of course, I don't know if it will, but I'm 100% sure that many people would love this system because it's it's like what we do now at a fuel station with combustion engine. It's five minutes, you're gone, mm-hmm. but you don't have the smell, you don't have anything. You always have top quality uh, batteries as well. So I see only pluses. And so this is something that I really, really enjoyed. So I guess my next car might be a Neo. I love that too, the convenience part. I would really enjoy that. It's like you said, we're used to five minutes. Mm-hmm. And if you make that 30, that's a barrier for a lot of people. If you take that away, that is increasing adoption. Yeah, cool story, Pascal. Great one to end the show with. I want to thank all of you, Laurence, Peter, Pascal, for sharing your stories. Thanks for our audience for listening. And we are looking forward to seeing you back in a next episode next month. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Radar by Nextworks. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about it. And don't forget to give us a review score, which really helps to boost this podcast. We'll be back with a new episode of Radar next month. Meanwhile, to stay in touch, please follow our podcast and go to our website, nextworks.com, to subscribe to our newsletter. Take care.